on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. I think that when you get to the end of the rainbow, and this is what I, I really would like to impart, is that when you've had this opportunity to achieve these goals, especially travel goals, you don't suddenly have like this major epiphany and go, well, now I can die. Now I've, 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 I've did it. I've seen it. I've done it. I got the t-shirt. I'm ready to die. Take me, Lord. You know, it just doesn't happen like that. All that tends to happen is the yardsticks move. You get more ideas. There's more things you want to see and do. And whatever it is, you want to push away death's door as much as you can. So that by the time you are ready to die, you're still going to have a lot of things that you want to do. They might not be as ambitious as going to the Amazon or going to the Galapagos. But, you know, just spending another day with your grandchildren, you know, you know, or just, you know, taking one more walk in, in the park. You know, that, that's absolutely, because why not? It's just experiencing life as much as you can. What does it mean to be a man today? The toxic patterns of masculinity are being challenged, and new pathways are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric uncertainty, how might we look to the old mythologies for guidance to navigate this space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculinities. Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. My guest today is Robin Ezrock, a global adventurer, travel writer, and author of The Great Global Bucket List. After a chance encounter on a Canadian TV talk show, Robin and I have remained friends for over a decade. We've shared countless experiences together, from working on his acclaimed international reality series, Word Travels, to exploring the playa at Burning Man, and even attending the prestigious Explorers Club in New York City, where he was the master of ceremonies. Robin is a man who has done it all. In our conversation today, he shares about his life growing up in apartheid South Africa and his immigration to Canada. He details the fortuitous motorcycle accident that became his gateway to travel writing and what he discovered about various rites of passage for men around the world. And finally, he shares key insights on how to travel with children. He has too, and what might remain on his list when it's time to kick the bucket. Before we begin, a reminder to please consider becoming a Patreon supporter for this podcast. I don't accept advertising and rely on listeners like you to fund the show. You'll get access to exclusive perks, including behind-the-scenes updates, bonus interviews, and more. Visit themythicmasculine.com slash supporter to learn more. And now, enjoy my conversation with Robin Ezrock. Welcome, Robin, to the show. Thank you, Ian McKenzie. <laughs> Would you please begin by sharing a little bit of where we are in this moment and where you are sp spiritually emotionally just a little taste for the listener the first one is a lot easier than the second one we are physically located in my office which is covered in postcards and clippings and photographs from around the world stared at by two of my literary heroes tom robbins and hunter s thompson under an atrium of four leaves yellows and reds and uh, two rats in their cage. I love the rats. I'm not so sure about the cage, but that's Rex and Booba. 
where am, am I at spiritually? <laughs> well, that's a difficult question to unpack. Maybe over the next uh, hour we can we can figure that one out. Okay, let's see how we do. I was trying to recall how we met actually, and I believe it was because you appeared on a talk show years ago uh, at the same time that a friend of my close friend also appeared on the same talk show, and I had recorded him being interviewed on the show. And I believe you had showed up just before because you were quite an active travel writer, I believe, at the time. And uh, I had it recorded and back in the time. I think it was a big deal to record TV or something. And so I uh, reached out, I think, and I said, hey, you know, I really appreciated your your travel piece. And, and do you want a copy of this recording? And I would love to hear a little more about what became of that initial encounter. Yeah, that's the way I remember it. And then I showed up at your apartment and invited me for dinner, which is very nice. We were like-minded uh, individuals. I mean, at the time, yeah, I was backpacking, traveling. I was writing a column for the newspaper. I hadn't really engaged with the community. I uh, didn't know there was a community to engage with. It's just kind of doing my thing. And we sat down, and we realized that we had a lot, quite a lot in common, I guess. You were running a travel blog at the mm -hmm. time, mm -hmm. Brave New Traveler. Yeah. Wow. And I think you wrote even – you did a story about me and – it still flags every once in a while comes up I, I see that you know what is this modern gonzo traveling because at the time my mm. blog was moderngonzo.com and I was all about the gonzo and you helped yeah trying to kind of tr trying to define what that is is in a new era of a traveler who is switched on tuned in open to everything mm. um, which looking back was quite kind of the, the kickoff of the whole travel blogger phenomenon. I don't think we realized that then, you know, people were blogging, but this whole idea of a travel blogger wasn't a thing. And you, I think, recognized that it could be a thing. I think mm. before a lot of people did. A little context to the interview, which and why I'm excited to have this conversation, is I uh, floated the title for this episode, The Second Most Interesting Man in the World, because your travels are extensive and your career, at least in the past, has been to write about all these experiences uh, in a way that, you know, if I, I'm fairly sure if I asked you about anything, you know, have you skydived with kangaroos in Australia or, you know, done shots with the Yakuza in Japan or something, like there's probably something or something equivalent that you've done. And so in some ways, it's an enviable array of experiences to have. And at the same time, I think there is some perspective that comes from your experiences and one that has that many experiences. And so I this is where we're going to be exploring in this conversation. But before we get there, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your origins uh, growing up in South Africa and what led you to initially come to Canada. And maybe we'll just start there for now. It's all a long saga. But yes, I was born and raised in Johannesburg, South Africa. I lived through the end of apartheid. Well, grew up during apartheid. Was very fortunate to have the right skin color during a time where you didn't want to have the wrong skin color. So when the whole kind of cultural conversation right now about systemic racism, you know, I grew up in an environment where that was manifested in a way that I don't think people can quite understand in terms of what white privilege meant in a time where, you know, not only did it mean you could vote and it meant that you got all the opportunities, it meant that you got all the the luxuries all the money, all the educational possibilities, it was all there for you. But watch that all crumble when I was a teenager. Nelson Mandela was released when I was 17. 
watched how the walls of that construct of what that society was collapsed. I grew up in an anti-apartheid family. I was exposed to the realities, the brutal realities of apartheid when I was about 15, mm. thanks to some cousins who were involved in the what was then the underground. So I knew that all was not what it seemed, but it's difficult for people to understand at the time. You know, when you grow up in a police state with censorship and no access to anything like what the internet is today, you can only you only know as much as you can access. And if you, the only thing you access is state-censored publications, it's very easy to fall into this ideolo- ideological trap. And so even though the reality was that millions of people were living in abject poverty and su- oppression, a half an hour's drive from my nice house in a middle-class suburb in Johannesburg, you don't quite, you can't piece it together. There's there's very little understanding, and anyone who can help you make sense of that understanding gets thrown in jail or disappears. Mm-hmm. But when, uh, you know, always knew that something was up, <laughs> obviously, and apartheid ended, I went to university, I studied journalism, came back, I got a, uh, I was headhunted before I finished my degree, I got into online media, went to work for a big, uh, one of the biggest media companies in Africa. And I think there were, there were a couple of things for me where it all kind of switched. I mean, I grew up my hair and I was kind of into my hippie smoking weed and I was into my, my, my hippie days. And when I got this job, and it was a corporate job, there was a building the the parkade was located a block away from the building and they said do not walk this block you know middle of the day do not walk this block now you're downtown johannesburg and at the time you know it wasn't like being downtown on the worst place you can possibly imagine it was just a street and the shuttle that would take us was one block was often nowhere to be seen and i remember it was a friday afternoon and i thought you know this is ridiculous it's a one block i mean i can see the parkade i'm just going to walk there and I'm walking along, and four youths, I mean, they probably they weren't very old, they mugged me at knife point. And I remember pleading with them. I was like, what are you doing? Like, I'm not the enemy. I'm not rich. I don't have money. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, just out of university. I, you know, like, let's talk. <laughs> let's sit, sit down. And I remember looking into their, their eyes, and, you know, many years later, I would stare into the eyes of crocodiles and sharks, and it was that same look. Mm. Because violent crime is a was and is a reality in South Africa. It's uh, again difficult to explain in a North American context, but you can get murdered for wearing shoes and a watch, and especially at that time, it was really bad. Johannesburg was one of, if not the most violent city in the world. And this kid was looking at me, going, "Do I kill this guy just for mouthing at me?" Mm. And I could, like, I remember looking at this and thinking, you know, time stops in those moments. But I was sincere. I was really sincere at this guy. And, and he just threw my car. And they started walking away, just walking nonchalantly in the middle of the day, people around. And I said, like, give me my car keys. You don't even know where my car is. You know, at least I can get home. And again, this guy looked at me and he just threw my keys at me and walked off. And anyone who's ever been a victim of crime, you feel this like insane sense of injustice, rage, anger. You want to blame somebody, you want to blame something, you want to fix it. And unfortunately, in South Africa, the, the crime was, it was, a, was a, a manifestation of decades of injustice, mm-hmm. of oppression, of lack of education. I mean, it's a, it was a broken society. And here I was, you know, walking along and I just touched it, I just tasted a little bit of it. And it was very hard to process. But right, I remember I got home that day and I was like shaking and... 
I said to my friends, I was like, we got to get out of here. I don't see this future because one day I'm going to look into those eyes and I'm going to be with my family. And in fact, we had family friends who were gunned down in front of their children. We like the violence was, mm. it wasn't political. It was economic. Sorry, I'm rambling here, but no, anyway, it's, it's okay. a long story. You, you ask a question. It's a big yeah. story. So, so I decided to, to move. So a whole bunch of friends, we all sat down with a map and we decided where we we're going to move in the world. And I'd lived uh, in a in a student house with a bunch of girls, one of whom was from Vancouver, Canada. She was dating a guy that she'd met traveling from uh, from my university. And she taught, spoke of this land of milk and honey, of forests and mountains, <laughs> and of so everything that Johannesburg was not. Uh, so I suggested it. I was like, what about Vancouver and Canada? Polar bears and <laughs> igloos. And some of our group kind of traveled around looking at these places. It was San Diego was on the list, Auckland, Sydney. I mean, very fortunate to even think about that, but we were 21 years old. I mean, that we, when you're that age, you, you can do anything. You can go anywhere. Mm. You, and one of them arrived in summer in Vancouver and said, stop the search. This is, this is where we want to be. And we all put in our, our papers with an immigration lawyer who got us all in. Mm. And to this day, four of the five of us still live here, married, yeah. kids. And our parents have joined us and brothers and sisters. And yeah, we've, we've got a whole little diaspora out here. <laughs> So that's how I ended up in Vancouver. <laughs> that's the short version. Mm-hmm. Wow, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. That's probably way more detail than anybody no, no, needs no. to hear. It's, but, no, it's fantastic. And then the, I know there's a number of things that happened before travel writing, but perhaps, you know, maybe a condensed ride <laughs> to, that, to that moment where, you know, there was the accident and all that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, I had a number of careers. I've had four distinct careers in my, in my life. The last one was working for a music agency, so working with genuine rock stars in artist development. The guy who listens to CDs and sees if there's anybody there, you know, is it the Beatles. It was a soul-crushing job. It happened to be at the time when digital downloading was killing the music industry, which was being led by dinosaurs who felt like the best course of action was to sue their, their customers. I mean, if you remember record labels suing fans for listening to music, for downloading music. So much talent was just falling by the wayside. Record labels were shutting by the day. It was a horrible time to be in the industry and it was soul crushing. So I was working in it at that time and I was run down by a car, broke my kneecap. I got 20 grand from the insurance company, which isn't a lot, but it was a lot when you make no money and it was enough to make me want to quit my job and go traveling around the world just to see all the things I wanted to kind of see loosely. You know, I was 30 years old. I wasn't, I was out of a relationship. My job was crap. There's uh, three very simple things to being happy. Let's find something to do, someone to love and something to look forward to. And if you can find those three things, generally life's okay. When I was 30, I didn't have any of those three (laughs) things. And I thought by going traveling, maybe I'll find them. And that kick-started a wholly unexpected career in travel writing, broadcasting, writing books, and being able to have this absurd opportunity to travel everywhere I've ever wanted to go and do everything I've ever wanted to do. Which I think this would be your first trip around the world, right? When you yeah. came back and you were featured on the show. It was breakfast television, actually, I recall now. Urban Rush. It was an open route. Okay, mm. Urban Rush. Uh, and I think you were there because you were talking about your travels, right? You had just come back. Or or you, the TV show, Word Travels, uh, had been pitched or had been picked up or, or there was some kind of interim moment. And yeah. I'm just trying to think. That's when we intersected, though. You'd yeah. come back. So you'd, in a way, you'd completed what maybe felt like the the journey that you always wanted. Yeah. But then there was some idea in you to, to pitch a show. 
Is that correct? Yeah. You know, I traveled around. I went to 24 countries in 12 months on a round-the-world ticket. And I was morphing into a travel writer. I mean, I, I, I kept a blog. I mean, I was writing 3,000 mm. to 5,000 word posts. So, they weren't really blog posts like we know today. But blog, it was just a whole new world out there, making videos. And, and that was it. There was never supposed to be more than that. I was going to come home and find a new job and find a new career. Um, but once I realized that, I, once I saw how this travel writing could allow me to keep traveling and keep doing stuff, you know, it would require a bit of sacrifice. I slept on couches for 18 months, basically, house sat and was doing odd jobs, doing anything I could just to keep the momentum going. But I was getting assignments to travel around the world. And as I did that, you know, I was manifesting this this idea of being a travel writer, but it was completely not sustainable. And I was getting older and all my friends were buying houses and I'm living out of a box and a backpack and waiting for the phone to ring. And so, yeah, came up with this idea of a show. I think I came up with the idea even when I was still traveling on that first time around the world, like, how can I keep this thing going? Well, TV. And then I don't know anything about TV, but I pitched an idea and... You know, I, I did. I just done some research. You know, I, I'm always telling people it doesn't. Lightning doesn't just strike. You've got to kind of stand in the right place. <laughs> is is a, is a good way to uh, to facilitate it. So I stood in the right place, and lightning struck, and we got a three season show. We filmed it in 36 countries, and was broadcast in over 100 countries, 21 languages. And uh, you worked on three of those episodes. Mm-hmm. And they were very good episodes. <laughs> <laughs> if I do say so. Yes, they, they were particularly eventful. Mm. Maybe we'll share a few of those stories. Um, <laughs> and I wonder, so what was it about being a travel writer now with a show that was different than when you were a travel writer just kind of winging it by yourself? Uh, you know, looking back, there's so much I would have done differently. The idea, the, the concept of the show was a, a behind-the-scenes look at travel writers. So we were supposed to be doing what we'd normally do, and the cameras would just be there to film it. The reality was we were not doing anything what a normal travel writer would do because we were filming a TV show, which had a totally different aesthetic, a totally different pressure on us as a demand on us. I was just getting started really as a professional travel writer and subsequently learned how what, what a press fam, that's when you get invited by tourism boards and what that kind of actually re- in reality looks like usually with a whole bunch of other people. You're on, you're on their schedule. You know, here we were on our schedule. So to some degree, it wasn't a authentic look, but we tried. We tried. And I mean, I was writing every week excessively. I was looking for stories that I could sell as to a newspaper or magazine editor, some of which I did, some of which I didn't. I was getting financially paid, so it didn't really matter if I did or I didn't. It was a very different experience, and we moved way too quickly. We we filmed one week per country, including one insane leg where we did nine episodes in eight countries on five continents in nine weeks. Wow. <laughs> Everybody went. It was everyone went nuts. It was it was heart of darkness stuff. <laughs> I'm recalling the episodes that I was uh, involved with. I believe it was the Azores Islands, just off the coast of. Mainland Portugal? Middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah, well, <laughs> middle of the Atlantic, yeah. The Azores, uh, Georgia, the country, not the uh, state, and Italy, right, which was... Supercars, Ferrari oh, and Lamborghini. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. I mean, I, I'd love to share a little bit. I mean, from what I recall, I mean, let's start with Italy. I remember the one story you were doing was was to visit the like the supercar factories, right? Was it Lamborghini and Ferrari? 
And there was one point where me, so just to the listener knows, I was a production assistant, which is sort of the gopher in some ways of the production. And for me, I was just starting out as a filmmaker actually as well. So I, you know, I was over the moon. It was just like, great. And I was able to shoot a little bit here and there, you know, like when the, the main DOP took pity on me or, you know, gave me a chance to shoot a little bit. But oftentimes I was the one, yeah, picking up stuff, carrying heavy tripods, tripods. <laughs> <laughs> yes. and uh yeah. and for this particular shoot in italy i was driving like the peugeot or whatever the the kind of local car was behind you in the ferrari so with the camera guy hanging outside the <laughs> car door and and he you know he's telling me like get closer get closer because you know he wants a good shot and meanwhile i'm terrified that i'm gonna hit the back of this <laughs> like i don't know a hundred thousand dollar car $350,000 car. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so it was pretty harrowing uh, and, you know, exciting in other ways too. I mean, I really enjoyed it. Azores, we went around with the bulls. I mean, you, I was definitely, you know, kind of on the side for most of it, I think, but you, you were in it. And the, the way that they do run with the bulls is a bit different than Pamplona, which I'd love for you to maybe to illuminate the difference. Yeah. So it's more humane uh, mm-hmm. in Portugal. If uh, you can, <laughs> if you want to call it that, they, they keep the bull on a rope. So there's a long, long thick rope that's around the bull's neck and you'll have like five or six guys kind of holding it back. So they, they let the bull out in the streets and people, the bulls are charging people, but they, they kind of tempering the charge. So it's it, they call it bullfighting on a rope, mm. and it's a festival that happens every year. And they've bullfighting on the beach. They let they let bulls run amongst kids. I mean, it's just insane. Um, <laughs> and then they have traditional bullfighting, and they don't kill the bull. But uh, it's still it's a, it's a cultural. I mean, it's it's so interesting. And yeah, we we went we did the one bullfighting on the rope where I got cornered by a bull. Um, again, as you know, looking into the eyes of something that's just got nothing but malice towards you, <laughs> and. You know, I kept on thinking, when are they going to pull this bull like back? Because there was, if the bull wanted to charge, there was enough slack on the rope that I would have been creamed. And then remember, we went to that that bullfighting ring where they had that uh-huh. that, that that passage where there's a, a rite of passage where like a, a teenage boy faces a charging bull. The the bull hits him. He jumps on the bull's head, and then a bunch of other guys kind of get up behind him and slow down oh, yeah, yeah. the charge with the what the guy holding the bull around the horns. Yeah, like oh my. <laughs> God, the things people do. So yeah, that 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 was the bullfighting on the rope, and then of course in Georgia we did the only martial art in Georgia and the wine industry where we got absolutely plunked in the Georgian tradition. Yeah. And uh, you filmed me on camera throwing up. <laughs> that was my one <laughs> glory shot, which did make it in the episode, which did make in it the in credits. The actually, I was quite a, I was quite pleased. <laughs> you probably weren't, but. <laughs> I will say that, yeah, I mean, that was definitely formative in terms of my career as a filmmaker, of which I returned home and I was already working on a film, or at least I had footage of, I think, uh, my other friend, the friend that was on the show uh, where we had met, which became the film One Week Job, where Sean Aiken is his name. And he traveled around Canada and North America, really, working one job a week for a year. I finished that film after that time and then have continued to be a filmmaker ever since. So I definitely attribute my uh, ability to kind of step into that career. It's all connected, my it's friend. It's all connected. It's man. all connected. So the show ran three seasons, as you said, and you got home. And was it somewhere in there that you met a particular woman and decided to procreate? Actually, <laughs> so it was that in Italy, while we were doing that that episode, that uh, show with Lamborghini. Mm. So I had this kind of idea of things I wanted to see and do in my life. And by the that was the third season of the show, right? Yeah. By that stage, I'd already done everything I'd wanted to do. I mean, 
my bucket list wouldn't well, yeah, I didn't need, feel the need. I still don't feel the need to like climb Everest. It's not really my thing. I have a good under, uh, idea of what that experience is like. But one of the things I really wanted to do in my life was drive a Lamborghini because, you know, <laughs> drive a Lamborghini. And our director on that episode was a guy named Peter Steele, and he had a six-month-old son. Mm. And I remember talking to him because we had a lot of long drives on that Italy episode, Rome to Bologna and... And he was just so enthusiastic about his kid. I mean, he was so into the feeling of fatherhood. And it, it touched me in some way. I don't know why. I, I mean, I think I was just at this point where I was like, okay, I've seen and done everything I've wanted to do. What next? And he, I remember just thinking, you know, I kind of want what he's got. Well, I want to have that feeling. I mean, I was single at the time even. And I remember driving the Lamborghini. And you kind of expect like, I don't know, you know, angels and sun god rays and like, ah, you know. And I was just like, well, this is cool, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. You know, so it's definitely a moment. I mean, I always remember it because it's the first and probably last time I'll ever drive a Lamborghini. But I remember thinking, there's got to be more to it than this. This mm. just chasing these, these, these peak experiences. You know, when I sat there talking to a guy about having a baby, he seemed to be just enthralled in a peak experience mm-hmm. all the time. So I remember coming back from that episode uh, in particular and thinking, yeah, uh, you know, I, I want I want some of that. I think that would be a logical next step for somebody who's seen and done it all. And I still to this day believe, and I mean, I don't want this to come the wrong way, <laughs> but it, it's difficult to understand what it is like to have children unless you have them yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I often hear, you know, I don't have kids, but I've got a dog. It's like, trust me, <laughs> I know you love your dog, but your dog is not a, is not a child. It's just, it's just a different level of experience. And it comes with its own very unique set of challenges too. I can concur <laughs> as, a, as a father as well now of a, a two-year-old. And I'd love to know, so you said you were single at the time, of course, and then what was it to meet the woman who I remember then, but maybe you can speak a little bit about meeting the woman that would become the mother of your children-to-be. What was that like coinciding with, you know, I hear two with things. You experienced a lot and you were kind of like, what's next? But also, you, I think you were a certain age by then, right? You may be 35 by then, 36? 33, I think. 33. Okay. And, you know, they say that women have a biological clock, but, you know, I, I've, I suspect that men do as well around a certain time. If it's something they do want to do, that there's something that kicks in around a certain time. And it's, I mean, it certainly did for me. Yeah. I met my wife in Vancouver. She's from Brazil. I think you met her on the Monday, and I think we started dating like on the Saturday. I think you were like the first person to meet her. And we just met in a bar, as one does. It was completely... I just got back from Brazil for my third time, I think. I was in love with Brazilian culture and kind of tuned into that 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 Brazilianness, and then i met this absolutely gorgeous brazilian girl and a lot of the idea of where you can go with someone i think is built on on potential you know you can you can get over a lot of differences with a with a partner but if you see the same future you could still get there and i think she saw the same future as i did which is you know having a family and building that kind of home like a really supportive and loving home. So it moved very quickly. I mean, we were married within two years. And we had our daughter. We traveled the world quite a bit. And then our, and then we had our daughter and, and our son after that. And we went traveling for a year with the kids. 
six countries. Yeah, living uh, living abroad, and you know, before my daughter started school, so we we kind of got that experience as well, which was like all things to do with children, the best and the worst possible thing you could do. And so, what were some expectations or, or understandings you thought you had before becoming a father, and what did they turn into after becoming a father? I don't think anybody can quite clearly estimate what a fatherhood what being a father is and will i mean just yesterday i was talking to a friend um and i was having a, a lentil curry and he says you know my, my girlfriend and i we're thinking about having a, a kid but it's probably not going to change our lives much and and i just like almost spilled my curry all over him i mean you you have this assumption that the kids will just slot into your life and you'll be able to just you know take them on the hip and off you go and you know, it so much depends on the personality of the kids. So much depends on where you're at in your life and how what you can what you're prepared to deal with. Personality of you as a parent. I know a particular guy who traveled with these kids like for two years. You know, and we've met a lot of families traveling. Not to say it can't be done, just to say it comes with a whole different set of challenges. And fatherhood comes with a whole different set of challenges. You know, thinking back to that 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 Lamborghini was absolutely right. It is living peak experience exhausting, enthralling, stimulating, challenging, inspiring. And, you know, I, I think this friend of mine, the same friend who's thinking about having a kid, he says, you know, every time I talk to you, you don't make a very good case for having a kid. You're always complaining you're exhausted and how your kids are driving you crazy and this and that. And I said, look, it's very easy to describe the challenges of, of having a kid. I mean, the the limits they put on your personal sense of freedom in sense of being you know just being able to drop a hat and go and do anything you want you've taken a lot of responsibility you've got to model good behavior you've got to deal with their hormones and their growth and their you know it's very easy to describe the challenges it's a lot more difficult to describe the joys that come from a child you know it, it, it's it's almost indescribable and as a result you know when you look online, it's very you see that you see that reflected everywhere. Just exhausted parents reaching for the bottle of wine at the end of the day, and you you don't you don't see that you don't see that 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 joy that peak experience coming through because it's very difficult to to explain. I actually really appreciate that. I've never heard it quite like that. That the the challenges are easier to transmit, you know, and articulate, but the joys are not. And I really actually feel that, you know, because. In some sense, they come in these times that aren't necessarily, uh, you wouldn't expect that would recognizably be joyful times. It could be, you know, when my son may be losing it for an hour while I'm trying to put him to bed, but then that lasts like two minutes when he snuggles up and suddenly falls asleep and all of a sudden that uh, moment turns into something completely different and there's this deep sense of like, yeah, joy and connection. And, and you know, I mean, it's hard to even talk about to someone else and and have them get it because it sounds like, wait, what? That That's the peak experience? You know what I mean? So. So I really appreciate actually hearing you say it in that way because it, it actually makes it more justifiable why it is so hard, actually, because you're right, it's hard to put into words because it's it's deeper than simply something that maybe even non-parents can recognize as, as valuable. You can rationalize it. I mean, I've, I've heard also quite a few people talk about their decision to not have children, which is valid. You know, everyone's on their on their journey. And yeah, it, it's you could say, well, you, you're just rationalizing it. I heard famous actors say the other day on a podcast, he was, he was saying, you know, with, with kids, you only see the benefit much later in your life, much later. You know, you're suddenly you're old and you're like, oh, I've got these children to look after me and, and stuff. And he's like, well, what about your, my life now? <laughs> he's like, so 
I, I, I just see, he kind of spoke of children as just being this big inconvenience. And I'm, I'm like, dude, this is spoken by somebody who doesn't have children. Because that's exactly what you would think. And it's logical and rational to think like that. Because having children is a non-logical and irrational thing to do. I mean, giving up, it's such an incredible sacrifice. So much so that I think that, you know, if you are a prolific artist or business person or whatever, it's a sacrifice that can pull you in one or two directions. You wrote, I think it was an article or maybe part of your longer book that you wrote around parenting and travel, I believe. And there was some bit around how to be with kids on a plane, which I, which I loved. I can't remember exactly how you phrased it, but I wonder if you could share a little bit about the strategies for being with kids on planes as you've done it many, many times now. <laughs> well, yeah, I wrote a book about family travel. I hate the title, but the publisher insisted. <laughs> it's called 75 Must-See Places to Take the Kids Before They Don't Want to Go. And that's really that's not... That's a terrible title. It's a terrible. It's not what the book's about. I mean, I wanted to call the book Don't Travel with Kids, but if you do, mm. because it's a hard-learned, brutally honest <laughs> description about places that we went while we were traveling across Australia for six months, but also the experience of actually staying in 50 hotels, a dozen flights, driving 20,000 kilometers, <laughs> you know, and some, you know, eating in restaurants, you know, and and it was difficult, absolutely very, very difficult. But at the same time, it's it's funny. And I thought that's really what the, the best way to describe it. I, I wrote it as a kind of book that um, I wanted people to give to new parents and say, you know, you might think your life is over, but you can do cool stuff. And I think any expert who says, this is how you do it. It's like, nah, you know, every kid is different. Every scenario is different. It might be that your kids slept well the night before, so they'll be great the next day. They might have a terrible night. They might be teething. They might. There's a million different things. So I think every parenting expert is actually full of shit, quite frankly. But, you know, with flying, we never, we never figured it out, ever. I mean, we were doing long hauls from, from Australia to Canada, and my daughter, you know, today was a 16 and a half hour flight. She didn't sleep. She watched movies. And we're like, oh, my God. And then she finally fell asleep as as the plane was approaching, the, you know, the tarmac. And then they were like, no, she's got to wake up because we've got to. And you're like, are you <laughs> kidding me? Yeah. So I don't know. We, we, we learned a bunch of different things. I don't know if we'd known what we we're getting into if we would do it again. But there are memories that are just. You know, of all these places and things that I've done, uh, 112 countries, ticking off 12 bucket lists. It was the memories of like having my kids on a scooter in Thailand that like just they stick with me. It's like they they tattooed onto me. You know, seeing an elephant uh, on the side of the road, or we stopped and they just like, you know, this is insane stuff. I got them. They had these little helmets. I rode without a helmet, and you just the wind in your hair and this freedom and exhilaration, and you've got your kids, and you're like, they're not going to remember it when Gally was two and Raquel was four. I mean, they're really not going to remember a heck of a lot, but it will imprint something on them for sure. And, you know, my kids aren't like, well, where's the next adventure, Dad? They're always saying, I never take them anywhere. <laughs> Somewhere along the line as well, you. Well, there was an era, I think both of us, we were really in this, um, you know, pitchy ideas for shows. One of the shows was called Man of the World, which was looking at rites of passage for men in different cultures. And I'd love for you to share a little bit about what was the premise of that and what were some of the experiences that you thought to draw from? Yeah, it was a time when my show was rapping and the broadcaster at the time was very enthusiastic about me. He really, he liked my ideas, he liked my energy. And he said, you know, what, do you have any ideas for shows? And 
you know, I have lots of ideas about everything. And I said, yeah, you know, what kind of shows would I like to see that's out there that I think people will get a lot from? And I got to thinking about what makes a man a man in different cultures. You know, I think what sparked it was actually, I think we might have been in Estonia or Finland and Helsinki or somewhere. And there was a picture of, it was a big billboard for some men's clothing fashion line. And it, it was like, the, these are men. You could see that they were being held up in by society as being like the pinnacle of what a good looking Finnish man should be. But the clothing they were wearing was almost effeminate by West, by North American standards. So, if you, that like advert would not work in North America, you know, that's a lot of Euro trash, you know, doesn't, doesn't translate culturally. And, and, but I was thinking, what is it that culturally would make a man in a different society? So, you know, I'm Jewish. I became a man in the, in the eyes of my community when I was 13 years old. There was a ritual. I had to have a bar mitzvah. I had to say, uh, a passage from the Torah and it was celebrated and it's a big honor and everybody gets behind it. And that, that was the marking traditionally of what makes a Jewish boy a Jewish man. Suddenly you count in the community. That's a, that's a ritual. But what I thought, what other rituals are there that are out there that defines the manhood that, that, that says, okay, you are now a man as opposed to a boy or something. And and when I started doing research into it, it's quite fascinating. You know, there's, there's cultures, say, the Maasai. And when we went to Kenya and I was with the Maasai, uh, a tribe there, and the, the how high they can jump determined their manliness. Mm. You know, jumping just up in a straight line. Women find you're more attractive the higher you can jump. And, you, you know... And you're like, okay, well, compare that to what? A guy driving a fancy car, you know, or, or having money and status maybe in North American culture. I mean, there were a bunch of other things. Scarification in Papua New Guinea was a, was a, a manhood thing. There's the famous one in Vanuatu where this is what inspired bungee jumping, where boys jump off like a tower with a vine leaf around their, their, their ankles and it kind of holds them, stops them just before they kind of kill themselves, and then they pass manhood. In South Africa, the, the rite of passage to manhood is, is a tradition where they take boys out, they, they circumcise them, and they, they kind of starve them into a bit of a fever state. And it's very controversial because kids die all the time. They get infections, but it's a cultural tradition. You know, and is it any more ridiculous than a Jewish bar mitzvah? I mean, it's just the culture that you're looking at. So I thought it, was, it would be a really interesting idea, and I kind of would put my foot myself forward to to participate where I could, where it made sense, without you know being being respectful, mm-hmm. but also learn from anthropologists and and the, the communities themselves, and maybe follow the rite of passage of of boys to men. That was the idea. It, it never got picked up, or I think somebody did pick it up, but not in quite the way I envisioned it. So the theme of rites of passage is one that I've covered a fair amount on this podcast in different angles. And I'm curious, you know, beyond the, the specific what of how it's done, what did you understand to be the purpose of this, of these kinds of rituals? Every ritual, I think, is accompanied by transformation, which is transforming a immature being into a mature being, somebody who's capable of handling more responsibility, taking their seat at the table, having a voice that counts. So really, you're a child, and then at some point, somebody looks at you and says, you're no longer a child. And here in North America, 
they would say, well, you're a child until you're 16. Then you can drop out of school, if you so wish. When you're 18, you can vote. If you're in the United States, you can't drink until you're 21. You know, and it's it's like, well, who are, who decides this stuff? And where did they decide it? When you're 16, you can drive. In South Africa, we couldn't drive until we were 18. Who decides this stuff? And why do they decide it? And, you know, some of it makes perfect sense to me. It's like, yes, I don't think you should have a 16-year-old voting. You know, I don't think that they're old enough to understand the complexity and the consequences of the issues. Some are, some aren't, but, you know, there's a decision. You, you, you draw a line. Drinking alcohol at 21 compared to 18 and then, you know, smoking weed. and It's like all these things are just about defining when a boy becomes a man or a girl becomes a woman. You know, a, a lot of this stuff, if we want to talk about that, is, is very interesting because traditionally once a woman has a period, in historically she was a woman. You know, she was up for marriage and childbirth. Once she had a period, and these days, you know, girls are having periods earlier and earlier, and it's like shocking to think of an eleven-year-old being ready for marriage and and childbirth. Like you just can't—it's children having children. So it's all about this transformation, I think, and all these rites of passage are just some kind of way for the community to celebrate it, to prove it. I mean, there's all the a lot of the time there was a proving. You know, you have to endure, you have some sort of challenge to show that you're capable and worthy enough of becoming a man. Through your experiences now visiting, I can't remember the number you said, the tally. <laughs> 112 countries. 112 countries. What are some defining experiences you've had with other men? Now, outside of, a, you know, maybe a, tr- a ceremonial context, but just, you know, it could have been some guy who sold you, you know, fruit on the street or some other encounter that maybe was a little harrowing at the time. Just what are some of those experiences that began to define your experiences of masculinity you know throughout so many different cultures um men i think are very simple creatures (laughs) you know machismo and testosterone as a thing especially when you're young a number of times i've been perceived as a threat by other men specifically when there's women around which is always kind of ludicrous because the last thing i ever was was a womanizer or it's like it's like uh, but you know, once, especially when we're filming the TV show, it, it's kind of attached a bit of glamour to me, I guess you could say. And I got other men, I would get kind of cagey around it. So I did kind of sometimes see that. I met an Albanian farmer on a bus who was so kind, so was such a sweet guy, and he invited us to his farm to milk his cows, <laughs> which we did. And, um, you know, all different types of men. Sri Lanka is a very good example. Men hold hands. And it's uh, quite an effeminate culture in Sri Lanka. The men are soft. They're soft-spoken. Like, I, I, you know, I, it's, the, it's hard for me to even envision, like, the civil war that happened there in the 80s and 90s. And, because they're such a soft, gentle culture. So it's a Buddhist culture. And it's totally normal. Same in India for men to hold hands in the street and walk along just like you would hold your, like your girlfriend's hand. And why not? You know, it's like, yeah, man, I dig you. <laughs> And, you know, for us, you'd go, well, you know, in North America, it immediately would be an indication of their, of their gender identity, of their sexuality. But there it's just being comfortable with being a man. It doesn't necessarily mean anything. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I also found quite interesting also in that part of the world was arranged marriages. Mm-hmm. 
which took a lot of pressure off this idea of a man having to kind of find his mate or his soulmate or his love of his life. You know, initially going in there with a little understanding of it, I thought it's kind of a cruel old world system. And now having my own kids, I'm like, yeah, I totally get it. You want your children to end up with a partner where you vetted their their, their upbringing. You feel comfortable knowing that they didn't come from a tragically broken background because unfortunately, tragically broken backgrounds can lead to tragically broken people. So this arranged marriages a lot of the time was just in the best interest of the child from the parent's point of view. And then from the child's point of view, having spoken to a number of people uh, and men and women who were in arranged marriages, yeah, it absolutely could be terrible, but there were a lot that had a lot of positive things to say about it. They were, they were like, I was really looking forward to meeting my husband. I met him. He was a lovely guy and it just felt right, you know, and I thought that was quite a kind of an interesting way because it also diffuses that sense of territorial, uh, you know, this hunter, hunting man kind of thing. You know, it's just a different system of looking at it. Having experienced all these different variations of masculinity, I'm curious, how did that change perhaps how you saw your own masculinity, uh, you know, as a performance maybe that you'd been doing or or did it shift, you know, did you show up differently in some ways? Or did it just call into question maybe certain ways that you'd shown up that you realized, oh, we're actually very specific, you know, to the, your own upbringing? Well, I, I'm very much a believer that the geeks have inherited the earth. I mean, I grew up as a nerdy kid, never had a girlfriend in high school, wasn't surrounded by women, always had a lot of confidence in some aspects, but not a lot of confidence in others. And one woman, I was just a nervous wreck around, girls I was just terrible around. So it was kind of always very interesting to me to to see the kind of guys that girls seem to kind of gather around. And of course, when you're that age, that's how you attribute success. You're like, those guys are successful because they've got girlfriends and they've got girls around them and they seem to be, you know, popular. And, you know, us on the sidelines, it's like, oh, you know. And, you know, you you brought up wingmen. I didn't. You did. <laughs> but that was actually a very interesting project. So uh, that was a project that we, we were working on about uh, professional pickup artists. And Well, they called it social fluency. Social right? which, fluency. Which but, is sort of a, yeah, how to be more more authentic in a way rather than awkward. To their credit. You know, when we went in, I don't think we quite knew their vibe, but these guys who were technically professional pickup artists what they were all about was helping nerdy awkward shy men learn the skills that they need in order to actually approach goals that they want to approach and i thought that was very uh, and it seemed to have a high purpose it took the sleaziness out of the whole thing it wasn't about just getting laid and i thought they were sincere about that so we we had a project where we took a, a young man who needed a lot of work and we followed them for like a week as they kind of worked with him. And it, it was incredible witnessing the transformation. And I must say that as we were filming, I was learning a lot as well mm. about the kind of confidence uh, one needs, you know, about, I mean, they were doing drills, you know, to approach goals with with, with the confidence, with a certain, uh, you know, I wouldn't say a technique, but there's a certain way to... to to yeah, be to invite conversation rather yeah. than stifle it to to you know invite an eloquence or a, a curiosity rather than a kind of inquisitive you know penetration like yeah yeah, yeah. It, it didn't it, it wasn't sleazy it, it just it, and i i would say and i don't know if i've ever told you this like i don't think i would have met my wife if i hadn't done that wingman project wow. because when i met her 
those skills that we were filming, I was obviously transferring. I was listening to them. I was taking notes. And when I met her, I mean, typically she would be the kind of beautiful girl that I would be very nervous around. But I kind of put it to the side. I employed some of the techniques. One of them is, say, threading is a conversational tool. You pick up a word in the sentence and you you expand on that word and then you just keep the conversation going, you know, and it worked. It absolutely, absolutely helped. I, I almost feel uh, that I was at the peak of knowing how to use those tools mm. when I met her. And that was the whole thing of what they were trying to do is when you see the most beautiful girl you've seen and you want to go and, and, and try and meet her, that you feel empowered that you can do it. And I think from a masculinity point of view, it's it's a, it's a very important tool that that men should have, and unfortunately, you know they call they call about naturals like men who just have this charisma or have this ability. Unfortunately, it's, they're not necessarily accompanied by positive traits. Mm. They're selfish. They're ego egomaniacs. They they you know the status driven. They tend to discard women and treat them badly. And it's it's there's an education there that I think you should do a podcast on that. <laughs> Well, this makes me actually realize that, you know, my my reading of books of other cultures, particularly around rites of passage for, you know, boys and girls, but also in a way like that time when like sexuality and, and that kind of urge, you know, comes online for them, that, you know, traditional cultures tend to have, I think, a kind of robust and kind of like deeply tempering processes for them to go through to skill up in these areas like i'm reading i'm thinking of one book martin prechtel's book i think it was long life honey in the heart where they say when you know they notice in the village that there's a couple like maybe a boy you know he's kind of drawing close and there's a like, spark between a girl around a certain age right they say okay now the boy is ready to basically be pulled away from any proximity to the woman and maybe the, or the girl and the girl as well is now spending time with the older women and the boy with the older men and there's a process where they actually turn that okay, you know, the urge is coming online. Now they have to go through a maturing process to actually be able to navigate and to, to know themselves deeper. And in this culture, of course, that's hardly the case at all. Suddenly, it's, you know, they're drunk at a party and, you know, here we go. And most people's experiences of their first erotic encounters tend to be like that, you know, kind of barely, you know, hazy experience in the back of a car or something, right? Which is deeply tragic and shows a kind of ineptitude that this culture has around around sexuality, around eloquence, around courtship, and all the rest. Absolutely. And accompanied with alcohol, generally, and drugs. So, as Malcolm Gladwell writes in, in his latest book, In Talking with Strangers, he, you know, he talks about the, the Duke State or the, the, the college where there was a, this big date uh, rape trial and kind of thing like that. It's like, yeah, you've got these kids. They're drunk. They're not thinking clearly. And... On top of that, the hormones are raging. You know, there's this expectation that they there to kind of accomplish some like like men are there to kind of call the woman, you know, because they they it's it's like a sense of pride. It, it's just so tragic and deeply flawed. And you know, if I think back to my my own losing my virginity, it was like, yeah, absolutely. There was no no kind of guiding. There's no leadership to understand to help me navigate what that experience should be to get the best of it. I mean. And, you know, if you think what, what, what kids are, they, they're thrust into this world. They, sex is all around them. They know it's out there. They're driven by their hormones, which are screaming at them. And, you know, they, they, they told about the responsible, about safe sex, about this and that and this and that. But there's very little work done on the emotional, 
you know, connections that are going to be formed, you know, what makes a boyfriend a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you know, what is a good boyfriend, what is a bad, what, what are the expectations? And I mean, and that follows you all the way through to marriage. And then they wonder, and we wonder why there's such a hard divorce rate and why so many couples are unha- unhappy. I, I love the uh, Brian Cranston, the Breaking Bad actor. He does couples therapy. He's been married to the same woman for like, I don't know, 40 years or something, like one of these like success stories. Mm. And he was asked, you know, how come it's successful? And he said, because we do couples therapy. Even we've always done couples therapy, even though we don't need it, we keep doing it because we're working on ourselves as a couple all the time. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was that was really good, really in- insightful. Yeah. Uh, you don't go to a couples therapist when your your marriage is broken down. I mean, hopefully it's not too late. You go before it breaks down, so it doesn't break down. And that that you don't have to go to a therapist. It's just about working on on yourselves as people, recognizing that your lives are changing. Children add so much stress and so many challenges. You know, there's a, it's adding that into the mix. It's it's just like having heart to hearts all the time. Well, returning back to your uh, writing um, achievements, <laughs> somewhere along the line, you came up with the idea for the bucket list, which as a as a meme or as an idea, of course, had been around for some time. But I'm curious then how that emerged as, well, that could be the next thing for you. Yeah, the bucketist phenomenon has only been around since 2007 with the movie. So That's, that's the first time. That's I'm the sure, first time. I'm sure the bucketist Everybody idea. thinks it's been around forever. I did the research. Wow. <laughs> I'm the bucketist guy. <laughs> Actually, there's another guy who calls himself the bucketist guy. I don't know what I am. I'm the guy who's written a bunch of bucketist books. Anyway, so the movie came out in 2007, and the writer just kind of pulled it. It was a nonsensical thing. You know, Jack Nicholson, Morgan Freeman, they have terminal cancer. They create a list of things they want to experience before they die, and they go and do it. People I've met, people who have sworn to me that they had a bucket list before. One woman said that she grew up on a farm, there was a bucket list, and that was the things you didn't want to do. Mm. You know, so I think uh, for some reason the word bucket and this has probably been attached together in different forms and meanings. But as we know it today, it's only been around since 2007. But it, it captured this universal desire perfectly because it doesn't matter what your age, your interest, your culture, your gender. You, people have this overwhelming urge to want to experience more of the world in the laughs, in the times that they have. And... It just it just took off, and I don't quite remember when it became part of popular culture. But I remember writing a column in 2012 where I was saying a Canadian bucket list, like using that that term of some of things I want to do in Canada before I die. I, I wrote a column and for the for the news uh, newspaper, and it, I traveled extensively internationally. I hadn't seen much of Canada. And I thought, well, the, the editor actually, it was Canada Day, a public holiday, and she said, you know, can you write something about Canada? I said, well, what if I come up with a list of all the things I want to see and do in Canada? And great, and that, we called it the Great Canadian Bucket List. It was a throwaway column. It really wasn't very, very interesting. But a publisher approached me the following week. I just get this random call because that's how life works and said, you know, we publish a book called A Thousand Places to See Before You Die, which is a runaway, phenomenal international bestseller. And you kind of hit on some of those aspects on a more local level. Would you be interested in writing a guidebook? Because that's what that book is. It's like where to stay, where to eat, you know, a little thing. And and I thought there's absolutely no way I want to write a guidebook. TripAdvisor, Google, Yelp, all the rest of it. Uh, it's like crazy to even think about writing a guidebook even back in 2013. But what if I can actually go and do these things? Because I always, you know, it gets back to that gonzo idea. It was my first person putting myself in the story, making myself part of the story, the people I meet, the feelings I have. 
And what if I can go and do these things? And they said, yeah, we'd love to publish that book, but you know, here's your advance. It's like 12 cents. So I had enough of a reputation. I had the con- connections and Canada's got a very supportive tourism industry and they supported me and it took two years of traveling and I went to every province and territory and I did all these things. And when the book came out, it just hit the nerve. It hit the absolute right nerve of what people, Canadians who didn't quite have that. No one had ever written a book like that before, which was crazy to me, that just celebrated unique experiences. It had a lot of personality and a lot of wit and humor, a lot of characters, like very interesting people that you meet. And the book became a, like a runaway bestseller. It did really, really well. And that led to the global bucket list and the Australian bucket list with all the same format, um, which is like essays of me going out and experiencing what makes these ex- these activities and destinations unique something you'll remember for the rest of your life great stories and some things that people can actually do and looking back now uh, what is it about the bucket list idea though that is so compelling i mean now people seem to understand what it's about right this idea of like well i got to do these things before i die but i'm curious now having spent enough enough time you know wondering about this what what is the deeper aspect of that phenomenon or maybe what's maybe what's the promise that maybe doesn't quite deliver still well death <laughs> in, in a nutshell <laughs> the final frontier hmm. time is limited bucket listers as a as a demographic are older people hmm. are active boomers typically they are have the means they have the time they're retired and they recognize they hit that point where they recognize time is short and there's so much they want to see, and there's so much they want to do. And so they do it. And I call them bucket listers. I mean, you can be a bucket list of any age, but generally they're active boomers and empty nesters. And it's that mortality that drives the whole thing. What if I don't get to do this thing? You know, that's something I've, oh, it's my dream. It's my dream. You know, I happen to stumble onto it and have these absurd opportunities at a much younger age. And I can... Maybe maybe that's to my detriment. You know, I, I often wish that I, instead of packing in 110 countries in, in, in 15 years, I could have spent that over the course of my lifetime because mm. there's so much – I could have appreciated it so much more. You know, when especially when we're filming World Travels and we're just hitting one country after the next and one experience day after day after day. I mean, it just you, lo- you lose sight of the, the context of it. You lose sight of the uniqueness and the specialness. I mean, these are things that people have been saving for and dreaming about their whole lives. And for me, it was Tuesday. And then Wednesday came along and so what are we doing today? Oh, you know, skydiving? Oh, okay, great. All right, all right. What are we doing, what are we doing today? We're we diving or wreck diving? Okay, great. You know, actually that wouldn't work because you're not allowed <laughs> it. But, but, but yeah, it was that kind of idea. And I think that when you get to the end of the rainbow, and this is what I, I really would like to impart, is that when you've had this opportunity to achieve these goals, especially travel goals, you don't suddenly have like this major epiphany and go, well, now I can die. Now I've, 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 I've did it. I've seen it. I've done it. I've got the t-shirt. I'm ready to die. Take me, Lord. You know, it just doesn't happen like that. All that tends to happen is the yardsticks move. You get more ideas. There's more things you want to see and do. And whatever it is, you want to push away death's door as much as you can. So that by the time you are ready to die, you're still going to have a lot of things that you want to do. They might not be as ambitious as going to the Amazon or going to the Galapagos, but you know, just spending another day with your grandchildren, you know, you know, or just you know, taking one more walk in in the park, you know, that that's absolutely because why not? 
it's just experiencing life as much as you can. Mm. There's a quote that I shared with you a number of years ago, I think now, from Rilke. And I would love to close, you know, tend towards the closing of the interview with this. Um, but I'd love for you to read the quote first, actually, if you'd be willing. Because, you know, for whatever reason, this quote, I, I think it's quite a powerful quote as well. And it's a it's sort of a Rubik's Cube of, you know, quote what it means. And, and it seems to change day to day. But clearly, it's meant a lot to you. And I would love for you to read it. And then we could just spend a little bit of time unpacking how, how it's really gotten you. Sure, yes. I can honestly say that there's very few quotes that changed my life. <laughs> and you sent me this. I can't remember when or why or how. But it just, yeah, it just sparked something with an idea in me. So, quote, Sometimes a man stands up during supper and walks outdoors and keeps on walking because of a church that stands somewhere in the east. And his children say blessings on him as if he were dead. And another man who remains inside his own house, stays there, inside the dishes and in the glasses, so that his children have to go far out into the world toward that same church which he forgot. Rainier Maria Rilke. Why did this quote resonate with me so much? Mm. I was playing with this idea of the fact, there's a, there's a friend of mine, he's quite a famous adventurer, and he travels around the world, does the most incredible stuff. And we shared a long drive and we really got stuck into this idea of children and, and, you know, he's been married, happily married for a long time. And I said, well, you know, you've never had that, you want to have children. And he said, I can't have children. Are you kidding me? The, the risks I take, he takes a lot, he's, he's well known for taking high, doing high risk stuff. He says, the risks I take, like I can't have children. I would never want to put my wife and children in that situation where, you know, they get a call because I did something, I'm just... You know, I'm, I've been taken out. I can take that risk on for myself. And my wife is prepared to take that risk on when she married me. But I wouldn't do that to my children. And so it's a binary choice. Do what I do and I love doing it or have children. I, he, he, he didn't see any kind of middle ground. And then I met another guy who did have children and he was a wingsuit jumper, which is the most insane thing. And it's got a very high mortality rate. And I remember, you know, he, he he gave a talk and stuff like that and had the whole wingsuit and I was sitting next to his wife and I spoke to her afterwards and I'm like, well, you know, what do you think about him being a wingsuit jumper and, and, and diver? And, and, and I, I thought she would be like, oh, you know, I love him, a hundred sport. And she said, you know, I, I, I sit in fear every time he goes out. And it's just like I had this idea of, of, well, here I am at this very unique opportunity of being a professional traveler, television, books, mass media social media, I have this opportunity where I can go and do just about anything in the world. I mean, it's there for me. But I have children. And there's no doubt in my mind that if I continue this path, my family life is not going to survive. I just It's impossible. I, I will be an absent father and an absent husband, and that's it. That will be the, 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 it, it, it's one or the other, just like my, my, my adventure buddy said. It's like you go out there in the world or you stay at home. And maybe you can make peace with the two things, but it's it's quite a it's quite a clear cut choice. And, and then you sent this quote, <laughs> and he captures that perfectly. You know, he he really does. He he says, "There's a man who goes out there, and that's what he does. And his children say blessings on on him as if he's dead. He's gone. He's finished. He's not around. We never even knew him. But there's another guy who's doing the dishes and." <laughs> You know, in stuck in the glass with the glasses and the dishes, which I think is amazing because it just perfectly sums up the asinine, 
you know, unpacking the dishwasher, folding laundry. I mean, God, it drives me crazy. I mean, the chores, the household, the blandness. But his children know him. And then it's their job to go out there and see the world because he provided a loving, stable home that enabled them to do that. So I love that quote, and it inspired me to 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 unpack it further, and it ended up being a novel. Mm. The piece for me, which I really appreciate in that quote, I mean, one, I had a very tangible example of that, which was both my grandfathers died the same year. It was 2015. And I feel like both grandfathers did that. One was basically absentee from the family. I didn't know him very well. And was sort of this mysterious figure that, you know, was into philosophy and all this kind of stuff. And I only really knew him when I went and purposely sought him out when I was around like 25 and, uh, you know, found out where he lived and drove out and, you know, it was kind of profound connection actually at the moment to realize, oh, wow, we have a lot in common actually, you know, where certain traits that I was like, I didn't know where they came from or I didn't recognize them in many other family members. And when I met him, I was like, oh, wow, there's, you know, there's this kinship. And, you know, then that kind of fell away when I went back to my life and we stayed in touch a little. But, you know, again, he very much was sort of out there. And then my uh, grandfather on the other side, he died in the home he built, you know, with eight kids, all of who, you know, were, were still around largely. And there was something in that that, you know, again, just like the quote says, it doesn't say one or the other is the right choice. This is the this is the kind of genius, I think, of the quote. It's not saying the one that went out, that's the right way, or the one that stayed, no, that's the right way. It's just saying whichever one you choose, there's a consequence that accrues to the ones that will come after you. There's a consequence to the decisions that we make as men, as fathers. And yes, absolutely. He doesn't say one way is the better. And I'm reconciling the fact that I'm still a travel writer. I'm still a travel personality. I'm still the guy who's most well-known for being this travel expert. But I have two young kids and two rats. And, you know, know, to some degree, reconciling that meant taking my kids with me. And that's why we traveled for a year and and why we kind of got that out the system to see what was possible and also just to have that experience, which was incredible, um, especially once we got to, to Southeast Asia. So it's just finding that, that balance. And I thought it would be a very interesting exercise to imagine what would happen to somebody who didn't have that balance or someone, you know, someone who sacrificed his family to go on, on follow the one path. And in, that, in, in the story at the well as well is this somebody who chose the other path who I think is actually the real hero of, of my, my, my story, who is the stable father because he raises good, a good child. So, yeah, it's a very interesting, not just for men, I think it's for, for, for everybody. You know, it's a very interesting thing about the choices that we make as adults, the consequences that, that, that come with them, and where you choose to kind of put yourself on, on it. I don't think it's so black and white. You can be gray. I think there, there is a way to reconcile it. But it's going to be an interesting journey. And, you know, it's not necessarily a journey a lot of people think about or, or, or a discussion that many people have. It's like, okay, what are the consequences of taking this job on or, you know, going traveling or, or whatever, whatever big life decision it is? What, what, what's it going to look like further down the line? As a mystery, but also as maybe some kind of the, the understanding that whatever choice is made, there is a wake. Right? And so, especially with children, it's almost like the absence of a choice made is also of consequence, which is what I love about the quote. Yeah, yeah. 
And we were talking about, you know, people who decide not to have kids. It makes perfect sense to me not to have kids. I mean, I can see the, the, the sheer inconvenience of it. It's like, yeah, I don't, I, you know, wow, wow. I don't want my lifestyle, you know, to, to become about diapers and, and bath time and, and teddy bears. And the state of the world. I mean, you know, I hear that a lot too, right? People say, I don't want to contribute. I don't want to have children that are going to grow up in this messed up, blah, blah, blah. But I think it's a decision, especially you see that with women who have a very short fertile period mm. where, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a huge consequence. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I know some, some women who've, who've had that realization too late. Uh, you mm. know, I want to have children and, it's just too late and it's tragic it's it's tragic you know because it is a it's, a it's a finite thing and i think as you get older the uh, the idea of of not having somebody or something to kind of leave a legacy to because you know the world is messed up we know that <laughs> you know but if you can kind of create a new generation that will not be as messed up i think you've done your job <laughs> You know, one of the f- things I appreciate about about our dynamic, and you didn't let me know if it's still fair to characterize this way, is I feel often, you know, you, you do have a certain street smart kind of suspicion about people, you know, and, and certainly you've been in a lot of certain circumstances, you know, right back to the beginning in a, a very violent society, you know, experiences that I don't really have. And so it's, I think, provided a kind of necessary, you know, intuitive ability to read people, I think, quickly, right? To know, like, what is their intention? What is their demeanor let's say but at the same time you've been to so many places around the world you've been in so many circumstances maybe places that people would have said oh that's a terrible place to go it's you know it's violent it's you know you're getting kidnapped or whatever it is but so you in some ways you've sampled so much of the world and experienced so many people and i feel like you did have some sense so of of kind of like you know hallmark wisdom about the planet but you know you're drawing upon a certain ability to see certain patterns and what were those patterns that you saw you know, again, like the inherent sense that people are genuinely good. You know, I think I've heard you talk about that. And and I'd love for you to maybe end with a little more of that understanding as you look back on all the time you spent. I did this project where I asked the same three questions to everybody I met when I was traveling. And I wanted to learn from everybody I meet. Didn't matter where they were, who they were, where they come from, every walk of life, every background you can imagine. And I asked them to finish three sentences. I'm inspired by... I regret, and today I'm grateful for. And this kind of uh, intuitive kind of feeling of, of reading people really stemmed out of that. That's when I really got to know people. And that's when the universality and the, the common humanity of everybody really started crystallizing for me. Because I had this, this, this stick where I would be in a situation and I would approach the most intimidating person in the room. I still do that sometimes. It's a it's a really cool party trick, you know. You're in a you're in a you know, one day in the in the future again when we're in a in a public environment and you you know a conference or a concert or whatever whatever and there's people around. Go up to the most intimidating person you can find, the one that you're scared to speak to. Ask yourself why you're scared to speak to this person because they physically imposing, because they you know got tattoos on their face, because they dressed in a funny way. Go up to that person and say hello and. Every single time that person is delighted that you came and said hello to. Because everybody in that room has got the same visceral reaction to them. For whatever reason, well, that looks like a mean, <laughs> like, don't go near that guy. And you only speak to that person and they're like, they're generally very, very nice. They, 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 hi, how you doing? Yeah, how you doing? Good. Yeah. A little bit suspicious of you. Some of these guys were, had some very colorful pasts or very, very colorful themselves. 
But you don't go in there as a threat. You're not trying to sell them. You're not trying to arrest them. You're, not, you're just like, hey, how's it going? What are you doing here? Oh, yeah. And, and you very quickly realize that, yeah, the, the, we've come a long way from a time in history where people would murder you for the, the, what you have. You know? and, and it ties back to growing up in South Africa, the violent crime that you see in some parts of the world, where that is still going on. It's not like we've evolved beyond it. We happen to be very fortunate to live in a part of the world where we have, where you can just walk down the street and not feel physically under threat at, anyone, at, at any time. I mean, certainly women don't have that privilege quite yet. One day, please God, they will. But there, the you know when you live in in this thing, we've come a long way. We we we're we're not v- as prone to violence. We're not as prone to want to take advantage of people because our own survival depends on it. You know, I, I, it gives it made me very optimistic ultimately. And I mean, seeing what's going on politically doesn't make me very optimistic. <laughs> and I'm quite cynical, even with everything that I've seen and done. But I do believe that that the, the if you surround yourself with very positive, interesting people, you'll have a very positive and interesting life. That people that will rather go out of their way to help you than, than harm you. That if you ask for help, genuinely, sincerely, most people will give it to you. It's not to say, hey, buddy, spare a dime. That's not asking for help. That, uh, you know, it's got to be done respectfully. It's got to be done authentically. And people will help because we've evolved as a species to want to look after each other. And collaborate and, you know, ensure that the weak aren't getting taken advantage of. I mean, we wouldn't be where we are if we didn't. So, you know, if there's a book that I recommend everyone read, it's Stephen Pinker's uh, Enlightenment Now, which is like a tonic for the crisis of bad news that we can't, we under, we're uh, we're drowning in. Because he's he's a Harvard linguist professor, but fantastic thinker. And he just breaks down the data to show that we are living in the most incredible time of peace and prosperity. So it does kind of ultimately allow me to sleep better at night and to feel that it's not as bad as what you think it is. Things change all the time. You can embrace the change. Good comes from change. I mean, look at what happened in South Africa. Everything changed. But I think for the positive, it had to change. So yeah, I, I do feel that that ultimately we're on a good we're on a good path, and uh, I'm, I'm hopeful. I think that this idea of not having children because I don't want them to be, grow up in a messed up world is is denies the fact that our children are the ones who are going to create a world that won't be messed up if we raise them right and if we bring them into an environment of of love and stability and show them and model for them how that is possible. Well, final words for now. Having seen all you've seen and done all you've done, at the still tender age of 43? I'm turning 46 on Monday. 46 on Monday. Is there or is there not anything left on your bucket list? Hmm. There's a number of things I'd love to happen. I mean, from a, from a success point of view, I'd love to be able to be in a position to keep writing professionally. I mean, what a gift. Very lucky for that to happen. Not very easy for that to to manifest. So you know, I, you know, my bucket list has always been kind of some things you can actually do. So yeah, I'd love my book to be a bestseller and turn into a hit movie. And but you know, realistically, just to be able to keep writing professionally would be would be amazing. 
in terms of places and, and things and things to do, it's really about taking my kids and, and giving them opportunities. Uh, I think if you just take kids around the world, if I was like that dad, the kids would have no perspective. They wouldn't understand how special the places they were in. I mean, I saw that with Australia. My kids were with me when I wrote the Australian bucket list. So they were every day, koalas and kangaroos and just the most incredible things. And there's no context for it. You know, my, my daughter would be, you know, what are we doing today, dad? You know, well, yeah. And I was like, oh, we're not doing anything. We're not doing anything. We're going to do a playground, you know. If we were in like some small town, we're stuck in some small town in Australia for a few days. And the circus was pulling through. Like, oh, the circus. I'm like, it's like the circus. All right, kids, we go to the circus, you know. Not even for the book. No, no, I mean, back in Australia. We're just going to start. And they loved it. And, you know, they loved that joy of just like being under the big tent and seeing acrobats. And so as, as I get older... One day, I would love the opportunity to retrace the, my steps, especially the stuff that I did for the Great Global Bucket List with my kids mm. and see what's still there left to do, mm. what's survived the environmental and political, socioeconomic fallout of COVID. Wow. And, and I think that would be just the most incredible journey. Well, Robin, appreciate your time today. We started off a little kind of low there, Ian, but we... <laughs> uh, we picked it up, and uh, you know, in in Jerusalem, you go to um, a yeshiva where the the the, the Torah, the guys study. They, they 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 basically debate. They argue every word that's in the Torah, and they said that when the great minds think, birds would fly over their overhead and would die because there would be so much heat <laughs> coming from their discussion. They'd be like so into it that it would just create this like energy beam <laughs> that, that would fry a pigeon. So uh, I like to think that maybe we fried a, a pigeon out there today. <laughs> it's definitely warmer in here. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Mythic Masculine. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing this episode on your social media. Also, you're invited to join the Mythic Masculine Network a growing community of artists, activists, poets, parents, and lovers of mythology, ritual, and wonder. We're co-creating the emergence of a culture of belonging, oriented around tending the masculine soul. It's a beautiful, intimate platform, and I'd love to have you connected. Visit themythicmasculine.com network to learn more.